Good morning. Uh, my name is Tony. I'll be reading the scripture passage that Pastor Ben will be preaching from this morning. It's from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and it's on page 784 in the Pew Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Well, any kids ages four through kindergarten can be dismissed now for Children's Church. And uh, Tony, thanks for reading that. David, thank you for your, uh, your prayers. And uh, I guess the third time is the charm. So if you have not been to either of the town halls and you are a member of our church, we would love to have you there uh, tonight at 6.30. And um, it's been a humbling and, and joy-filled experience to come together and talk about the church plant. And we'd love to have you there. But as has been said several times already, we're going to talk about church planting this morning. And we are in a process of planting a church as community, a church called Midtown Community Church, and I'm going to be sent out as the planting pastor of this new church. And as you maybe have have heard the service so far and hear this introduction to the sermon, the more cynical among you might say, okay, I know what this sermon is. This is the sermon where you try to drum up and tug on the heartstrings and appeal to everyone to plant this church in Midtown. I know what this sermon is. But I'm going to tell you, that's not the chief aim of this sermon. My aim is much bigger than that. I actually have something much bigger than that in mind. You see, this sermon is not an appeal for you to get on board with Midtown Community Church specifically, although I pray and hope that will happen. This is a sermon for you and me and for all of us to get on board with church planting. I'm going to appeal to you this morning that every Christian and every church should be meaningfully and sacrificially invested in planting more churches. And that every Christian and every church ought to see this not only as a burden, something that we have to do in obedience to God, but something that is an immense joy that God invites us into that we get to participate in. And so if you would join me in prayer, that's a big aim, and we need God to come and minister his word to us this morning. So if you would join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you sit enthroned today as the ruler of all creation and the head and Lord over your church. So Lord, I pray that as you rule your church by the power of your word through your Holy Spirit, that you would multiply your word. And this morning, may you cause your word to sprout up fruit in our hearts. Use this word of mine this morning from the scriptures to encourage us and to spur us on to see more healthy, gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting churches planted. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, let's begin. Uh, I want to reread um, verses 19 and 20 as we begin. So just so it's fresh in our minds, would you look with me at verses 19 and the beginning of verse 20? It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now that little chunk of the larger passage is commonly referred to in Christian circles as the Great Commission. And so I want to form my outline for my sermon this morning around that title of the Great Commission. So I have three points to my sermon this morning. The first is the Great Church Planting Commission. The second is a Great Church Planting Problem. And the third is two Great Church Planting Promises. The Great Church Planting Commission, a Great Church Planting Problem, and two Great Church Planting Promises. So first, let's look at the Great Church Planting Commission in those verses I just read. And most Christians and churches throughout the ages have given this command a high place in their thought and practice. It truly is a great and sweeping command and charge This command sets the priority for the life of a Christian, to make disciples. Now, that word disciple is one, I was just reminded recently, uh, it's, it's a word that I think oftentimes in Christian circles we use so much that it can almost mean nothing because we use it so oftentimes. So, so to give us a synonym for the word disciple, think of the word apprentice. So, so think of somebody who apprentices in a given trade. So they observe and watch their master's craft and hope to one day follow in his or her footsteps. So if you're a Christian, your life exists primarily to make disciples of Jesus. Your life exists for you to apprentice under Jesus the master and to make more apprentices of Jesus. That's one way the Bible frames the ultimate purpose of your life. As the Bible scholar D.A. Carson summarizes these verses, the aim of Jesus' disciples is to make disciples of all people everywhere without distinction. But like many passages of the Bible that are familiar to many Christians, we're prone to make unhelpful assumptions about what this great commission means. And I think probably the most unhelpful assumption that all of us immediately bring to this text is this. We assume that the Great Commission is something that we do as individuals. In other words, we take the Great Commission to be a charge primarily and and in some cases exclusively towards personal evangelism and world missions, maybe sometimes. But this command by its very nature is corporate and communal in its scope. And and you don't have to look back more than a few weeks in our sermon series to see why. So two weeks ago, Pastor Benjamin preached on baptism. And we see here that part of making disciples involves baptism, where Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is is an inherently communal activity. 
Baptism involves church elders who present candidates for baptism that profess credibly faith in Jesus, people that we really think are Christians. And these people who are baptized are baptized into a community of faith. Baptism implies incorporation into a worshiping community, into a local church. So the Great Commission, at the very least, implies planting more churches so that we can baptize more people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So so church planting is at least an implication of the Great Commission based on that command to baptize. But I think we can go further than that. So let me use, if you'll, if you'll excuse me for a second, for a sports analogy. I'm a little bit self-conscious. I feel like I revert to sports, anal- sports analogies too often. But this is the one that came to mind, so this is what we're stuck with. But when a, when a basketball or a football team especially hires a new coach, typically in, in their introductory press conference, they'll talk about wanting to introduce a new scheme either a new offensive or defensive scheme. Maybe in football, they'll talk about wanting to spread the ball out more to some of their, and get some of their quick players in space. Or in basketball, they'll talk about wanting to push the ball in transition and keep the other team on their toes. But what the, church, or what the, what the coach's words communicate in general in that press conference don't really mean anything and don't really get specific until we see how that game plan, how that scheme works itself out on the ground in the first games of the season of that new coach's tenure. We don't know what it's like until their players execute that scheme in a real game time situation. And so if we want to know what the Great Commission scheme fully looks like, we need to look at how Jesus' first-year players apply this scheme on the ground in a game-time situation. How do the disciples apply the Great Commission? How do the apostles go about making more disciples of Jesus? So if you would, keep a finger in Matthew 28 and turn with me over to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 there, just a short section of Acts 14. And this section of the scripture gives us an example of how the Apostle Paul executed the Great Commission scheme in a game time situation. So Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, that's the city of Derby, where Paul currently is right there in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to Derby and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, a little bit of of context there. So, uh, in the beginning of Acts 14, Paul had kind of gone on this tour through these cities. So, he started in Antioch and then was sent to Iconium and then the city of Lystra and then finally the city of Derbe, preaching the gospel to each of those cities as he went. 
But notice what he does after he finishes going through those cities to preach the gospel. He goes back through each city and appoints elders and commits the new Christians to these elders. In other words, the Apostle Paul follows up his evangelism tour with a church planting tour. He, he does what he tells Titus to do in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, in, on the island of Crete, which is to put what remains in order. In other words, he plants churches out of these new believers that have embraced the gospel. That's how the Apostle Paul applies the Great Commission on the ground in his life and ministry. Local churches are God's means for making disciples, for seeing people trust in Jesus, get baptized, and start following him. In other words, in order to fulfill Jesus' great commission command, we must plant churches. It is a great church planting commission. And this means, I think, that every church and every Christian, in order to be faithful, of this, faithful to this commission to make disciples of all nations, must be meaningfully invested in church planting. Friends, one of your primary purposes in life is to see more churches planted so that more people become apprentices to Jesus Christ. All Christians and all churches are called to sacrifice in order to obey Jesus' command to see churches planted, both here in the States and around the world. So that's a great church planting commission. Now, where do we see a great church planting problem show up in this text? Well, if you would, uh, look with me at verses 16 and 17. So Tony read 18 through 20, but if you would back up with me, and let's read Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So here, the resurrected Jesus appears to his 11 disciples, and it's likely that, that there was a larger crowd there than just the 11 disciples. It's likely that there was a group of people there. And when his disciples see him, it says there almost surprisingly, it kind of catches us off guard in verse 17, that some doubted. Now, that word doubted there can also be translated, and I would argue is better translated as hesitated. So when they saw Jesus, some, some worshipped, or they worshipped him, but some hesitated. Now think about it for a second. At this point, the 11 disciples have all seen the resurrected Jesus some multiple times. And by all accounts, biblically, we know that these disciples have acknowledged both with their head and their heart, even with some initial reluctance, that, that, that this man in front of them is the resurrected Christ. They've acknowledged that fact. But I think that's why this word has less to do with intellectual questioning and doubting and more to do with waffling in the face of something unknown. Now think about our lives. Most of us tend to hesitate in the face of an unknown situation. 
So we hesitate to invest our money, right? Even in a worthwhile venture, many of us, because we don't know and can't assure what our rate of return will look like. Or we hesitate to buy a home because we can't foresee where the market will go or what problems inevitably the house will have as soon as you move in after buying it, like the garage door breaking. I'm not bitter about buying my house or anything. (laughs) Or we hesitate to truly disclose ourselves and form deep friendships with other people because we don't know for certain whether that person person will let us in or whether they will use uh, what we've shared to hurt us and turn on us. We hesitate when we face what is unknown. And the the disciples here were facing a great unknown. Jesus, their Messiah and master, who they just thought went to his death, has come back to life. Uh, That's wonderful news. Uh, That's news to be celebrated and to rejoice in. But but as we read the Gospels, they should have been, but none of Jesus' disciples were anticipating that. So when the resurrected Jesus pops back onto the scene three days later, they're overjoyed, but they also must have been filled with so many questions about what this meant for their lives. They ask in in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, will you now bring about the kingdom of God, Jesus? What is our place in that kingdom? Where do we go from here now that you're resurrected? It's unknown. And Jesus answers some of those questions for his disciples with his clear commission, right, in verses 19 and 20. Because I'm raised from the dead, Jesus says, you're now to go make disciples in all the world. But even at that, they still hesitate to believe the direct implication that Jesus' resurrection has on their lives. And although we live 2,000 years later, and we know the Great Commission and many other biblical instructions, we still hesitate to believe all that Jesus' resurrection and ascension means for our lives. And particularly, we hesitate when it comes to his command to plant churches. And, And one of the main reasons we hesitate is because of the unknowns. And think about your heart, and I'll say, I'll think about my heart as we think about stepping out and planting a new church. There are so many unknowns that naturally cause us to to hesitate, to to wanna falter and step back. Will Midtown community even make it as a church? What hardships will inevitably come for those of us who are going to go plant this new church? Will we replace the people we send out here at community? Will we replace the finances we send out here at community? Will we continue to grow at community after we plant this church? What will the new pastoral hire look like and how long will that process take? On a broader scale, what does it look like to plant a church in the part of our region that that is most hostile to Christianity, even as our country is increasingly growing hostile to Christianity? And on a more personal note, Will, you might be asking, am I still going to see the people that go to the other church? I don't want to see them go, you might be saying. Will our relationships have to drastically change? And these are just a few of the unknowns about what it means to plant this church specifically. And these could cause us to falter and draw back from the implications of Jesus' resurrection and his commission 
to plant churches that could keep us from following through on the Great Commission and obeying it by planting churches. And so the question, my question for us this morning is, how do we move from hesitancy and doubt to worship and obedience in the face of these unknowns? How do we willingly and joyfully sacrifice to see new churches planted and more people come to know Jesus when there is, are so many legitimate things that would cause us naturally to hesitate and falter and step back? Well, in order to do that, we need the two church planting promises that Jesus gives us here in this text. He gives us one in verse 18 and one at the end of verse 20. And I pray that these two promises would be promises that we cling tightly to as a church as we step out to plant a new church. And these promises, I'll say, aren't just foundation, aren't just the foundation to plant one church. These promises are the jet fuel that can power the engine of our hearts to a lifetime of service to see more churches planted here in Harrisburg and around the world. All right, let's look at them, if that's the case. So the two promises, Jesus' power and Jesus' presence. Verse 18, Jesus' power. Would you read verse 18 again with me? It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When we read that verse, I think those of us who have been Christians for a little while, naturally, when we think in terms of the category of God's sovereignty, in other words, we think here that Jesus is saying that as God, he is in control of all things. When he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We think he's just, he's speaking about his general control over all things as God. And while that's certainly true, I would say that only fills up our tank about halfway with fuel. I don't think that's all that Jesus is saying here when he says all authority has been given to me. I think there's more to this promise here in verse 18. Think about it with me in terms of a king over a specific nation. So if there's a king who rules over a specific country or territory or nation, you can say by virtue of that king being in his position as king that he has authority over that territory or nation. But what if enemy forces come in and occupy what is that king's by right? They occupy this nation. And then, what if the king personally leads a resistance army to drive out his enemies and to take back control of that nation? And if he were to declare then at that moment when he won victory, all authority in this nation has been given to me. That's a different kind of authority than just a general sovereignty. This is the type of authority I think Jesus is speaking of here in verse 18. And and, and to say it maybe a bit more provocatively, Jesus has a type of authority in Matthew 28, verse 18, that he did not have in Matthew chapter 4, verse 9. So if you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, that's where Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him three times. 
And his last temptation in Matthew chapter four, verse nine, is where Satan comes to him and offers to give him dominion of every kingdom on earth if Jesus will only bow down and worship him. And I think that is a legitimate offer. You see, whenever the enemy initially infiltrated God's garden and, and, and deceived Adam and Eve and we fell the enemies of Satan's sin and death took some semblance of control and authority over God's good creation. They were an unwelcome enemy intruder. And so in Matthew 4, rather than Jesus taking the easy path back to authority, submitting himself to Satan, worshiping him, and taking the kingdoms, Jesus, as our faithful king, pushes back the darkness from this earth during his life. He dies a death to defeat Satan's sin and death, and he rises from the grave. And when he raises from the, from the grave, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that he is declared to be the son of God in power. There's something different about Jesus' authority now. Jesus is the one with the authority of a conquering king. He has defeated our enemies and he has reclaimed his rightful rule over every nation on earth. And now look as we keep reading into verse 19. Based on that victory, it says, Go therefore and make disciples. Church, because Jesus has taken back his rightful lordship from our enemies over every square inch of this globe, we go to all nations with confidence because we go under the banner of a resurrected and victorious king, joining in his victory by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And what that means for us specifically is that Jesus Christ, is the rightful Lord over Midtown. Jesus Christ is the rightful Lord over Harrisburg. Jesus Christ is the rightful Lord over the United States of America. Jesus Christ is the rightful Lord over all of the earth. He has kneecapped Satan by his death and resurrection. He, can, he cannot stand against the power of the gospel of King Jesus. And there might be many things that scare some of us about a neighborhood like Midtown. On the surface, it seems ideologically much more resistant to the gospel. There's divergent sexual expressions and spiritualities. But let me tell you one thing, church, based on Matthew 28, verse 18. There is no threat to the kingship of Jesus in Midtown or any other square inch of this globe. He is Lord. And where Jesus' church proclaims the gospel and displays it by their actions, we bear witness to that authority. We stand under the banner of the victorious, resurrected king, and the gates of hell will not prevail. So that's why we go. We go, therefore, because Jesus has all authority. We go in Jesus' power. But that's not all. We also go with the promise of Jesus' presence. Look with me at the end of verse 20. He says to his disciples and to all of us, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Matthew, the gospel writer who began his gospel in chapter one, declaring that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, concludes his gospel with the promise that God with us will never leave us. He is always and continually God with us. Now, this may seem like a silly question to ask, but, but just on the surface, and maybe if you're here this morning and you're not as familiar with church and Christianity, but you know a little bit about it, you might be asking this question. Okay, if Jesus says, I'll be with you always, doesn't he immediately after this ascend to heaven? Like, doesn't that, like, how does that work out? Uh, I'll be with you always, bye. Like, that's not typically how we comfort somebody with our presence. Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a parallel passage that recounts what Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, this is what he says. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus promises us that he will be with us every step of the way as we seek to fulfill this great commission because he has given us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the empowering and comforting presence of Jesus. God gives us his spirit to enable us to obey this command, to go to all nations, even when it's scary, and to comfort our hearts along the way by making the love and grace of Jesus plain to our hearts. Church, the good news in this is that we don't go alone. We don't go into the unknown of planting a church by ourselves. Jesus does not give us this daunting command and then chuck up the deuces and peace out. The Holy Spirit is with us to comfort us, to encourage us, to empower us every step along the way as we seek to obey this great commission. The Holy Spirit is the one who will give those of us going to Midtown the power to share the gospel. He'll give us the power as a church to lead out in generosity, sacrificially till the point it hurts. He'll empower us to step into service, whether it's in a new church or whether you stay here at community and help to fill the holes that come up. The Holy Spirit's the one that will empower you. Maybe if you're staying here to adopt a young couple in Midtown, to bring them into your life, to sacrifice your time and energy to encourage them, to mentor them, to build them up in grace. The Holy Spirit is the one who will be with us to comfort us as we mourn the friends that are gonna be going out to plant a new church, as we mourn the loss of weekly rich fellowship with our brothers and sisters as we leave. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will empower us and encourage us to consider going with this new church, even though everything in you wants to remain comfortable right where you are. We do not go alone. And now one word in that phrase that I think is important as we close is the word behold. Behold, I am with you always. That word behold is an attention-grabbing word. It's a word that says, hey, look at me, I'm important, remember this. In fact, even several translations here in this passage translate that word behold as remember. 
Remember I am with you always. We are so prone to forget the promise of Jesus that he will be with us. I'll just say this. If we forget that promise and we operate on our own resources and abilities, if we operate like we are the ones that have to manufacture a new church plant, then we will putter out. This thing will not go anywhere. But if we remember that Jesus is with us by his spirit, that he goes before us, that he is the one that is working to see this new church come about, then our engines will be filled and ignited to sacrifice joyfully to plant this church and beyond it to be a church that plants more churches for the honor of Jesus' name throughout this age and continual generations to come. It's only when we remember the promise that Jesus is with us The church planting goes from being something that we have to do to being something that we joyfully get to do in participation with our risen Lord who is working to see all things new and more and more people come to bow the knee to his reign. So church, let's be a church that plants this church and plants churches with joy for the sake of King Jesus. Would you pray with me? There's so many things we could pray right now. Father, uh, so many things are in my mind. But I pray simply now for the strength to remember your promises. Help us to remember that you are with us. That your Holy Spirit is given to us. That he is the one who empowers us. He's the one who comforts us. And in his strength... And in the love of Christ, which he sheds abroad in our hearts, may we go forward to obey the great church planting commission. And Lord, through this church, may more people come to know Jesus. May more churches be planted. And may the fame and glory of Jesus spread further in this region and around the world. We can only do that with your help. So Lord Jesus, we pray, come. Amen.